This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You mind if we hear some tunes? Hey, that'll work. You got any Christmas music? This is Christmas music. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Not because it's snowing or the shops are rammed or the booze is flowing more, but because Die Hard has been re-released. Yeah, which means Bruce Willis battling 12 types of Euro stereotypes at Christmas time. Bruce Willis struggling to reconnect with his estranged wife at Christmas time. And Bruce Willis sending Hans Gruber to his doom from the 30th floor of the Nagatomi Plaza at Christmas time. Yippee-ki-yay, Christmas lovers. Today we're talking about Die Hard, which is a Christmas film. It is absolutely a Christmas movie. Some people protest that. It's a Christmas film. It's, it is. It's the second best Christmas movie ever made. Hello, happy holidays, and welcome to the BFI podcast. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. And at this time around, we're not doing discoveries. We're doing discoveries for the whole year that's just passed. So what are your top three things that happened in 2018 on screen? Well, I've just discovered there's free Haribo in the studio. So I'm <laughs> that. That's um, one, Haribo. Okay. No, all jokes aside, um, <laughs> this is a really difficult question for me, actually. So because I don't really play video games or do anything aside from watch films on screen i'm gonna pick two films and one television show but the first two films that come to mind that just blew my mind this year and i cannot stop thinking or talking about are hereditary obviously and i don't think we've spoken about this film but i genuinely think it's a one of the best debuts ever made b one of the best horror films i've seen all year and in the last 10 years my mother was a very secretive and private woman. And also it's an extraordinary family drama that's wrapped up in a whole bunch of freaky horror. It's Grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. Full of surprises, twists and turns, and it's incredibly smartly directed and has an incredible array of visual storytelling that is so assured. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. Oh my god! She isn't gone. 
I'm nodding a lot because I haven't seen it, obviously, but that nod means I'd like to see it. Sounds you should great. absolutely see it. It is fundamentally a really, really well-written family drama that has a lot of really scary shit in it. Great. <laughs> and uh, my other film would be Bart Lane's American Animals, mm-hmm. which we did a whole podcast episode on, which is a follows a gang of teenage aspiring art robbers. This library is home to the most valuable book in the United States. $12 million. You really need to see how easy this is going to be. Oh, you know this from all your previous ice? A very, very smart meld of non-fiction and heist movie. But it's very smart, deeply entertaining, and it completely sticks with you. And it's also just picked up the best screenwriting award at the at the recent Biffas just a few days ago. So I'm very pleased about that. And what's your third screen thing? It would be the miniseries Sharp Objects, which we've mm-hmm. also sort of discussed, but I am still reading from it. Well, I said she saw a ghost. It's an incredibly gothic borderline supernatural, really, really dark female story. I'm not scared of them ghosts. About... Are you? Some very, very damaged characters and the relationships between them. And I'm not going to say anything more about it because there's eight or ten episodes that are pure charm. Pure charm? Charm. A dark dark blend of charm. (laughs) You know, charm thrown in with a lot of um, psychological (laughs) problems. Darkly charming and shit scary. <laughs> I love sharp objects too. One of my favourite screen things this year was Succession, which is the Jesse Armstrong. It's rebellion. Thing about a very rich Saboteur. dynasty. Deliberate attempt to undermine my whole business. And how they're all squabbling over daddy's millions. Brian Cox plays the daddy. It's my company. You are a fucking nobody. Kieran Culkin, Sarah Snook, who's fantastic in it Matthew as well. McFadden. And Matthew McFadden, who is essentially the TV revelation of the year in that role. He's used to, well, we normally see him in kind of more buttoned up period character roles. He's the B-list Mr. Darcy. Yeah, B-list Mr. Darcy. In this, he's just fantastic. He just lets his freak flag fly, as they say. So that's succession for my first one. My second one is a video game called Hollow Knight. 2018 wasn't a fantastic year for video games compared to 2017 and actually Hollow Knight was originally released in 2017 so I'm cheating a little bit but it became popular this year. You would play a tiny little mouse figure who runs around an underground cavern system poking people with a needle and there's a strange made up Nordic language that gets revealed as the game goes on. It's incredible, it's really good, brilliantly atmospheric. And finally uh, my last selection is My Friend Dharma which is the Jeffrey Dharma. Have a great Dharma, dumbass. Biopic, I guess you'd call it. The teen years of Jeffrey Dahmer. The teen years of Jeffrey Dahmer. I wish I had a best friend. Before he started killing anybody. Jeff's a little off, you know? I think he's kind of hilarious. <laughs> it's talking about his high school years and how people responded to a character like that when he was in his kind of infancy of being not a serial killer as such, but a psychopath. It's kind of astonishing the way it plays with tone. I need to talk about Jeff. What is this? You wouldn't know about the kids because you're not at home anymore. It's both... A sunny film and one that really hints at the darkness to come without making that cheap or tawdry. Um, And I really thought that was quite a powerful movie-going experience. Okay, on to Die Hard. Die Hard is 30. And in our notes that we've got here, and I've just written, I I think we just talk about how cool Die Hard is, dot, dot, dot. But in case nobody's seen Die Hard, and I can't imagine that's the case, can you do a little uh, precise for us, please? for the three or so people who have not seen the Stone Cold classic. And like I said before, second best Christmas movie ever made after Home Alone, obviously. 
It follows gruff and grumpy New York policeman John McClane, played by Bruce Willis at his peak, who's visiting his estranged executive wife Holly, played by Bonnie Bedelia, and their daughters on Christmas Eve. He goes to her corporate office Christmas party at her swanky high-rise headquarters, but the festivities are interrupted by a gang of generic European terrorists, led by Hans Gruber, played by the late great Alan Rickman in, shockingly, his first big-screen role who takes everyone, including McLean's wife, as hostages. And very soon, McLean realizes that, that there's no one left to save the hostages but him. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you don't work for Nakatomi. And if you're not one of them... I'm a cop from New York. New York? Yeah. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Better being caught with your pants down, huh? <laughs> I'm John McClain. What could we possibly say about Dark Heart that hasn't been said before 30 years on? I have no idea, but I've just been roaming the internet picking out cool stuff that I didn't know about Die Hard, so I thought we could just throw them at each other. You've made a really interesting point, surprisingly. Thank which you. is that Jesus. <laughs> 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 Stay on brand. <laughs> you made a really interesting point, which is that you call Die Hard a foot fetish film. Yeah, I Explain did. Explain yourself. I might be being a little bit silly and a little bit glib here. Who knows? But, okay, so the film opens with John McClane on a plane. He's terrified of flying, as I am. So immediately, me and John McClane are pretty similar. You're basically the same basically person. Basically the same guy. And the guy next to him, who is the kind of businessman who's used to flying all the time, says... You want to know the secret to surviving air travel? After you get where you're going, take off your shoes and your socks. Then you walk around on the rug barefoot and make fists with your toes. Fists with your toes? <laughs> So John McClane goes and does this and takes off his shoes. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Fists with your toes. And that's the reason why for the rest of the movie, pretty much, he, in fact, for the whole of the rest of the mm-hmm. movie, he's barefoot, which adds an extra level of weakness to him and jeopardy. And I just love that there's a plot point, that character point about John McClane, i.e. he's a weak human being who's scared of flying that is carried through the rest of the film directly through him taking his shoes off. So that's your first foot fetish hit. The next one is The Broken Glass, which is really... Like it's quite graphic body horror and it's pretty horrible. There's a scene where Alan Rickman famously tells the henchman to... She's Stimfenster. Shoot the glass. And they all shoot the glass. John McCain runs across it in bare feet and gets very bloodied feet. And then there's a scene where he's picking glass out of his feet in the sink. It's disgusting. But again, very kind of visceral and gives you a real look at the character. And then there's a point where John McClane does the thing that the audience is already thinking, which is he tries to take one of the henchmen's shoes so he doesn't have to be barefoot anymore. And he says, nine million terrorists in the world and i got to kill one with feet smaller than my sister. I just... (laughs) 
love the fact that the film is so obsessed with feet for the for the first point but the fact that john mcclain is immediately shown to be a kind of weak everyman even though he's amazing and can kill 12 terrorists on it with his bare hands it's just it's a brilliant piece of character building that goes throughout the film so on the kind of the glib funny side it is a foot fetish thing but it's also i mean i want to zero in on that on that kind of opening because you're right I'd i'd completely forgotten because the film has so many iconic scenes and lines and the characters even of Hans Gruber and John McClane obviously because he's the one protagonist throughout the whole Die Hard franchise that remains kind of unmovable in a similar way as you know Rocky is always in all the Rocky yeah. films whether he's the protagonist or not when we meet him actually we meet him in a point of weakness totally he is scared he's uncomfortable he's being talked down by this sort of mid-level executive who's flying on some weird cheap flight who feels superior to him because he is not afraid of flying like John McClane is and um he's given this piece of very strange advice to kind of do the thing with his feet in the carpet. He's also, sorry, but he's also on his way to see his estranged wife who left him and moved all the way across America because she got a job that was higher up than his and was earning more money and was going somewhere with her career, right? Like you can't, in terms of a masculine action hero, you can't get much more broken and emasculated than John McClane at the beginning of Die Hard. That is our first image of John McClane. He is sitting in a cheap seat on a cheap flight, scared out of his wits, feeling very uncomfortable and being talked down to while he's kind of, you know, running back to his estranged wife, trying to basically beg her to come back to him. Yeah, and there's this amazing scene where the sleazy corporate guy that works with his wife talks about how successful she is and says, oh, she got a Rolex and a raise this year because she's doing so brilliantly. And John mm. McLean, like kind of lets out this little sigh and just his shoulders just drop. Like, he is never going to come back from this, even by helping them save all those hostages so and actually, kill 12 terrorists. So actually, that the whole film is him trying to rebuild himself as a, as a human or kind of rebuild his sense of masculinity and of authority in a way. Not over her in particular, but just for himself as yeah. well, of trying to make him himself valuable and useful and the only way he can do that is by you know walking on glass and saving 30 people from european terrorists as you do (laughs) (laughs) jumping off a bunch of buildings and crashing in through the windows my next diehard tidbit which i think you probably knew about already but i had no idea and this is credit to my dad actually he told me about it um alexander goodenough who plays carl who's the kind of long blonde haired uber henchman if you like we're both professionals this is personal. Was the Bolshoi Ballet's premier dancer until he defected from the Soviet Union when he was in the US on tour in New York in 1979. I think that's kind of amazing that these worlds are colliding because the henchmen are, they are a kind of ragtag bag of massive Euro and Soviet stereotypes. There's a kind of, they each have a different accent. There's an Italian in there somewhere, I think. There's, different, there's the Russian guy, the Germans, someone who sounds vaguely Swedish. And again, the film references this, and it's a very self-referential film, but there's a line where McLean says something like, the Europeans, I think, I can tell from their suits and their cigarettes, which I absolutely love that he's kind of taking time out just to check the brand on their fag packets. And yeah, the the idea that the kind of real world of Soviet crisis could crash into Die Hard, this ultra-capitalist American film. And that's another key film theme of the film for me is that it's about America under threat, as a lot of action films are. But this one in particular, like it's situated in a Japanese tower block that's been built in the middle of L.A., one of the key cities in America. And they've even rebuilt one of Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, iconic buildings in the middle of their lobby, as if to say, 
we can grab freshwater, this building, and put it in our lobby because we're that much more powerful than America now. In a way, it's kind of everyone from all over the world, you know, Europeans, Japanese, um, businessmen and whatever, appropriate American culture. Totally, yeah. So the completely flipping. <laughs> completely <laughs> flipping what the 80s was, I guess, in American eyes anyway. But... but then is it really flipping when then John McClane, you know, a big, gruff, all-American, New York NYPD dude comes in with his wife beater and eventually shirtless and bloodied yeah. and kind of claims back <laughs> True. the building and America. Hey, that's it. It's him rebuilding his masculinity, but also re America rebuilding its faith in itself through the film. Whoa. See, we found something new to say about we, Die Hard. I doubt it's new. It's well got done. to be an essay out there somewhere. Well done. <laughs> Anna, feed me a tidbit. Come on. What I'm really interested in is much more than behind the scenes factoids. It's actually how the film has remained relevant. There's a great piece on SlashFilm.com about the influence that Die Hard has had on contemporary filmmakers yeah. and how they keep revisiting it and how they even keep um, bringing their own children to it and sort of showing them this very radically different action film from what the contemporary audiences are used to seeing now, which is very CGI heavy, very over the top and, you know, very bombastic and explosive. But in a much less palpable way. So like you were mentioning before, th some of the scenes in Die Hard are pretty much body horror. You can feel them in the soles of your shoes. Yeah. But also... There is a real physicality to it, not just because of the way that Bruce Willis has a very specific type of physicality on screen where you can feel every single scratch and burn and hit that he takes on and how close the camera is always on him as John McClane in the first one. It continues to have that effect on your audiences as well. I just rewatched it last night and I'd completely forgotten just how visceral it is. It is like a punch in the gut. And it's interesting to look at action films now and which ones have taken some of those lessons both aesthetic and thematic and really visual as well from Die Hard and applied it to a new brand of action movies. And I'm thinking in particular of the John Wick approach and the Atomic Blonde approach. And those two are related, of course, because one of the choreographers of the John Wick franchise is the director of Atomic Blonde. I chose this life. And someday... It's going to get me killed. But not today. Lorraine Broughton, expert in intelligence collection and hand-to-hand -hand combat. Agent Gascoigne was killed last night. Did you know him? Enough to say hello. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It is the damaged hero, I think, at the center. And I'm talking about damaged emotionally. So we've talked about how kind of we meet John McClane as a broken man, but also physically, every single cut and bruise he takes we can see the effects of that. And I'm thinking of Charlie Theron's character in Atomic Blonde. She is messed up and bloodied and bruised by the end of it because after every single fight, there are repercussions. Part of the reason why we love the John Wick films is that, again, it's the man stripped down to his bare elements and then beaten to crap after that as well, right? I mean, John Wick is a little more supernatural than John McClane. It is, McClane. to be fair, yeah. yeah. He's got incredible sets of skills and can take down hundreds and, of goons. But And um, to be honest, John Wick being stripped down to his bear is kind of him losing his dog as opposed yeah. to him losing his humanity and his wife and, and children. Still being part of this massive elite, you know, uh, headhunters um, assassins union where he can somehow get huge guns like st- sewn into lining of his suit and all that. Not as cool as the NYPD. It's really not. <laughs> is it here? It was. I asked you where the hell did you get it? Who gives a shit? The owner of the car. Did you, did you kill him or what? No. He sure as hell fucked up his dog. <laughs> he fucked up his dog. That's what you did. You yeah. fucked up his dog. Yeah. All, that's crazy shit, man. <laughs> I heard you struck my son. Yes, sir, I did. Yeah, may I ask why? Yeah, well, because he stole John Wick's car, sir, and uh, killed his dog. But I totally take what you're saying, that the impact of all those injuries is shown on the people. And, you know, it's a kind of shorthand for emotional damage as well, I guess, isn't it? Although I have to say, John McClane never seems to feel that bad about dispatching robbers and terrorists by the handful every 10 minutes or so. I think it's because he he is really extremely focused on saving his wife and kids. Yeah. I think that's kind of the really humane thing about him. In the first film, at least, I think he definitely, as the franchise has grown larger and it's tapping into nostalgia more than anything else with the later installments, you then become very bombastic and you kind of grow apart from John McClane as a person. Whereas in the first one, you completely get his motivation. All he cares about, really, is about getting his wife um, and kids to safety. Yeah, totally. He doesn't really give a crap about the motivations of the Euro trash terrorists. Probably shouldn't say that as a European. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a European too, Anna, still, just about. Um, <laughs> no, but totally, that thing of John being unsure of himself and scared carries throughout the film. And 
I think you see that in reflected in films, even in like big, big superhero films now. Like, like if you look at Logan, the recent Wolverine film, to me, that is the John McClane template, but put into a man who has adamantium skeleton and can slash people to bits to ribs with his claws. He's like, he's emotionally weak and he's, he's an addict. He's broken. Um, but you would have never been allowed that kind of template without uh, Bruce Willis playing John McClane at, at the start of it all. Absolutely. But do you think, kind of to reverse that, um, that thought process, do you think then that John McClane, is it all presented as a, as a superhero? Yes, but he's presented as, as the superhero that the ordinary man thinks they could be, right? And that's the whole point. Like, we go to the Marvel films, I'd argue, for that 10 minutes where the normal person realises that they're going to become a superhero or they start to realise their powers. Or if you think about something like The Matrix, the most affecting part of The Matrix is for a certain type of kind of sitting in his bedroom bro and broette. A broette. A broette. <laughs> Realising that they have power. Coming in 2019, the Broet special. (laughs) (laughs) But realising that that Broet, she has power and that she has a world outside of her own that she can break free of. And wow, it's cool that I can jump from buildings and Morpheus can teach me all these cool kung fu kick-ass skills. That's the most enlivening bit of those films, right? Because it is a transition of a character from something that feels ordinary, just like us, into something that feels super powered and um, world-beating, essentially. And the key thing that Die Hard does is it never lets you forget that John McClane is an ordinary bloke even though obviously he's not because he's thrown a computer down an air a lift shaft and it's blown up four or five robbers in one go I just think it brilliantly ties together those kind of ordinary everyday feelings that we all have of insecurity and this kind of kick-ass destruction blow up the world and f everybody else mentality that America loves particularly do you think there's any contemporary equivalence of sort of the everyman um, real-life superhero that we can see now? Other than myself? Uh, I don't know. Do I, I, think I action films have taken it on so much now that it's just become... It's not even a trope. It's like the rules of the action genre. Well, I can... I was thinking and of the action... the superhero genre. I was thinking of action heroes. And aside from Logan, in Logan, but not on any of the other X-Men films, I'm thinking of some of the action franchises that exist, like Alex Cross or Mission Impossible, things like that. And actually, none of them are humans. They're presented as sort of unrealistically talented action stars and sometimes it does depend on the charm of the performer who plays them whether they are considered relatable or not i think kind of the transformation of john krasinski into an action star is quite interesting because he is your de facto um you know the cute guy in the office who is sort of relatable because he seems realistic and achievable but then transforming that into an action star seems like a weird way of trying to make the action star a bit more human but you don't achieve it by casting an actor who is sort of charming and relatable but by making the characters better but, I think. but then like Bruce Willis himself was known for moonlighting at that point right the TV comedy and he was great in that and he's a great he's a great comic actor and people forget that a lot of the time but absolutely and the whole nine yards is an deeply underrated comedy he's he's fantastic but like you they were relying on that human quality which they you know to be honest the filmmakers didn't know they were going to get because he was something like 25th on the casting list like everybody turned this film down but it wouldn't be the same film without bruce willis showing his humanity and showing his funny side and that's what john mctiernan the director really wanted to do was to make it a funny film as well and not just make it a kind of grim gritty terrorist drama and there are moments in this film which i forgot how funny it was like, it is so, so hilarious funny. and <laughs> i think actually the 
the inadvertent banter between Alan Rickman and Bruce Willis in this film as well is part of that comedic genius yeah. also. Because Rickman is also being, you know, an extraordinarily talented but also very deeply serious performer, both in his process and in the way that he presents himself on screen. He is so funny. Yeah. He is hilarious with his one-liners. I thought I told all of you I want radio silence until oh, further... I'm very sorry, Hans. I didn't get that message. Maybe you should have put it on a bulletin board. But I figured since I... Wax Tony and Marco and his friend here, I figured you and Carl and Franco might be a little lonely, so I wanted to give you a call. How does he know so much about this? This is very kind of you. I assume you are our mysterious party crash. You are most troublesome. For a security guard? Sorry, Hans, wrong guess. Would you like to go for double jeopardy where the scores can really change? Who are you then? Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. The pain in the ass. Check on all the others. Don't use the radio. See if he's lying about Marco and find out if anyone else is missing. And when they have this sort of brand of, you know, foreign and American humor clashing together, it is very basic but hilarious because it's like having two people speak a different language but completely bouncing off each other. There's a moment where the um, police are about to send in the heavies who are going to storm the building. Uh, obviously, that's the wrong thing to do because Hans Gruber has, has anticipated that. But they send them in and there's a, just a little small scene of these guys clad in black with big automatic weapons running towards the building and they run for a rose bush and one of them goes, ow, and grabs his hand as he gets pricked by the rose bush. I just like, like visual comedy like that is just like something from Naked Gun. That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't belong in a diehard film. Or... Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson of the yes. FBI, who were basically the men in black, yeah. but, you know, 15 years earlier. Hey, how you doing, man? I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Dwayne Robinson, LAPD. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Just, I love the bit in the helicopter that. when one of them goes, oh, this is just like in Saigon. And he goes like, I was in junior high, you dipshit. <laughs> it's like these super bros, like they're kind of alpha, alpha, alpha men who are plainly idiots and are plainly going to come to a sticky end. But do you think 30 years on and kind of being woke now, as we are, yeah. do <laughs> you sort of... <laughs> that sounds so tired. <laughs> you nod reluctantly. We do a lot of woke chat. <laughs> Do you think that 30 years on this film, you could interpret it as kind of poking fun at over-the-top mega alpha masculinity? Yeah, I mean, we can read it that way, right? And we, sh we should. Why not? Let's give it the benefit of the doubt. I don't think, I'm pretty sure John McTinnon wasn't going for that. Like, the female characters are non-existent. Like, there is... True, it, you know, it is very much a man-man's film. nothing in there for... I don't mean nothing in there for women. I mean nothing in there in terms of a female character who says anything oh, to no, the audience. Oh, no, Holly, um, who is uh, John McLean's wife barely gets a couple of words yeah. in. Yeah, and the classic the thing of like lamping someone at the end of the film, like, and that is her character trait, that mm -hmm. she's strong enough to punch someone, which is kind of like, again, those rules, I guess those rules hadn't been changed at that point. You can't expect the film to change everything. But in terms of adding a kind of element to masculinity that isn't just pure, like, I am a badass and I will kill you all, definitely it, it kind of evolved the, the conversation about what the gender could do in that type of film or what you could expect or what could you accept from male heroes as yeah. well and then there's also aside from the character there's also this massive trope of die hard but 
like films that came after it. And one of my favourite action films of all time is Crank with Jason Statham. And the brilliant quote that was from the director of Crank, which is in the same slate piece that you were talking about, was this slash film. Slash film. Sorry, that Crank was essentially diehard, but the character wasn't trapped inside the building; he was trapped inside his own body, which I absolutely love. And briefly, the how Crank works is that Jason Statham has to keep his heart rate at a certain high level for in order to survive. Otherwise, this poison kills him. So it just involves him running around, punching people, and at one point having sex in public. It's just an incredible film. If you haven't seen it, you have to see it. My name is Chev Chelios. Today's the day that I die. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I've been poisoned with some kind of Chinese synthetic. You've got to do something for me, dog. They gave you the Beijing cocktail. It's cutting off your adrenaline. If you stop, you die. Now, I've got one hour to settle the score. Say goodbye to my girl. And go out with a little style. All I have to do is stay alive long enough to make it happen. But those films would never exist without Die Hard. That, that, that simple premise, which is a brilliant premise, would never be followed through to those extremes. And that is John McTiernan's work. Just a couple more small points that I think that Die Hard has influenced. If you look at things like Christopher Nolan's Inception, there's so much in the soundtrack that is him not ripping off, but pastiching what happens in Die Hard. So Ode to Joy the Beethoven uh, symphony is repeated throughout Die Hard. When you move into the building, the string quartet are playing it and then Alan Rickman whistles it in the lift and then it's woven into the soundtrack at various bits, like the light motifs are strung throughout it. Uh, Christopher Nolan did the same thing with Inception with Jeanne Greta Rien. My French is not great, but I tried. Um, and then also that feeling of essentially a Japanese corporation coming in and taking over something that's American is a very Nolan-esque feeling to it, definitely. The other thing that I think is really influential in is The Creepy Journalist, um, in that film loves to paint journalists particularly as these kind of bloodsuckers that will chase you down for the story and not care about your family situation. And the character in this is like the archetype of that sort of filmic invention. Um, and Which then, is a very American caricature really as well. Is. I mean, yeah. you know, it goes back to the man who shot Louis to balance, really. Yeah, I mean, there's elements of it in broadcast news as well, right? Mm. Like these characters are not And, you know, Ace people. in the Hole as well. Yeah, Totally. But then that goes through forward to something like Nightcrawler. I think mm-hmm. you could say the journalist in this film is very much like Jake Gyllenhaal's character in Nightcrawler in that he is ruthless and relentless in a way that feels... Um, sociopathic essentially he's not really connected with people at all which is what you're supposed to be but i think that ultimately has more to do with a very sort of american brand of ambition and if you know if you work hard enough if you're smart enough if you're quick and ruthless enough you will get to whatever it is the point that you want to get to that we've made you believe is needs to be your life's goal yeah so anna at the start of this, you told me before we started recording that you're a diehard baby. You I'm a diehard baby. In the same year as the film was released. Yes. So the film is turning 30 this year. I've turned 30 this year, which I realise um, obviously makes me John McClane. I, mean, I was going to say, have you taken any particular life lesson from it? Wash wife beaters. <laughs> Keep them pearly white. <laughs> Keep them pearly white. <laughs> also, always wear socks. <laughs> And that's it for this episode, this year and this season of the BFI podcast. We're going to take a break through January and come back stronger in February. In the meantime, please check out our back catalogue on your pod provider of choice and let us know what you'd like to see from our second season. We are also seeking to rename the pod, so if you have any good ideas for naming whatever it is we do, please get in touch on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and... 
I'm on Anna B. Dementin. Special thanks to our producer, Pete Sale, the Al Powell to Anna's John McLean. More of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. And thanks to you all for listening. Have a happy holiday and we'll see you in the new year. Your last line today comes from Die Hard. Welcome to the party, pal. Hey. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.